0: In mid-2005, after learning that no major documentary covering U.S. policy in Iraq was being made or was planned, our guest today, Charles Ferguson, formed Representational Pictures and began production of No End in Sight, the first film of its kind to chronicle the reason behind Iraq's descent into guerrilla war, warlord rule, criminality, and anarchy. Charles Ferguson, welcome to Film School.
1: Thank you very much.
0: How are you today?
1: I am well. It's beautiful in Los Angeles.
0: Oh, good, good. That's you're just up about sixty miles away from us, and I, I'm locked in a studio, and and you're appreciating the air, <laughs> I guess. Are yeah. you
2: Are you traversing the highways and byways of Southern California?
1: Yes, I am. I'm actually on on the way to an appointment. Very good. good.
0: You have a background in computer technologies. Uh, You've worked for a while putting together software. How is it that you came into filmmaking?
1: Well, I've been somewhat obsessed with film for a very long time, ever since I was uh, a child, in fact, and have been going to film festivals for uh, a long time. For the last 10 years, every year I've gone to the Telluride Film Festival. I know the director of Telluride, Tom Luddy, who's uh, become a good friend. And I've been interested in and have have for quite a while harbored a semi-secret desire to um, make films. That interest collided with Iraq in Uh 2004,
2: 2005. Who was it uh, that was most instrumental? I noticed that Alex Gibney is the executive producer on this documentary. Was he an integral part of how you came to make the film or were there others?
1: Many people helped me. Uh, Alex uh, certainly first among them. I spoke with Tom, who put me in touch with various other people in the film world. I spoke with um, Christine Samuelson, who had the documentary program at Stanford.
0: Well, you didn't do a romantic comedy, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh, you chose Iraq. Did you have a political background, or were you just just as a citizen, fed up with what was going on in the country?
1: Uh, I do have uh, a policy background, I Ah. would say more than a political background. I have a Ph.D. in political science from MIT, and my uh, Ph.D. thesis advisor was Deputy National Security Advisor for President Kennedy. So, yes, I I, I had had a Ah. substantial background previously in national security and and defense policy matters.
0: Did that drive you into making this film? Were there insights you had from from your uh, studying at MIT to see what was going on with foreign policy in Iraq that drove you to make this film?
1: Well, it certainly gave me a strong interest, and uh, I, I'd spent probably a decade involved in foreign and, and military defense policy questions, yeah. to one degree or another, and, and it also helps because I knew some of the people involved, and I knew some of the organizations that they were associated with, and so I probably was able to get somewhat better access than your average filmmaker.
2: We're speaking with Charles Ferguson, and the film, it's a documentary film uh, called No End in Sight, and it really chronicles sort of the nuts and bolts of why things went so terribly wrong post invasion of Iraq back in 2003 it it, it identifies a particular segment uh, of the administration and they really they're bungling given what you've seen from your investigation into this and the the film itself is it was it was so badly handled did you ever suspect that, that there was sort of a malicious intent from the beginning of the occupation of Iraq
1: no i I don't think so. I think, I think that there was certainly some, some callousness, and uh, in fact, an extraordinary callousness, disregard for the welfare of the Iraqi people. But you no, know, I, I don't think that this was, um, was deliberate, and, and I don't think that anybody in the White House right now is exactly delighted at the situation in Iraq.
0: On, on the other hand, though, uh, they've got their oil. Or it appears that they have. It's, it's a little bit messier than they figured. But if you look at it from a perspective of the green zone and the Iraqi parliament passing a law maybe in the near future that grants the oil rights to the major oil companies, then in those ways it's, it's been a success. And, and I'm I'm of the mind that this is incompetence. But I, I just want to be, be sure that this isn't you know at least in your perspective this isn't you, you you definitely had a feeling it wasn't part of a master plan that is somewhat successful.
1: No, certainly not. And, yeah. and actually, uh, excuse me, but I have to to some extent um, disagree with you about okay. the condition of Iraq's oil. Uh, Iraq's oil is not under I mean, control, and uh, in fact, Iraqi oil production is. Uh, lower now than it was under Saddam Hussein, uh, Iraq has enormous oil reserves, gigantic oil reserves, but it's virtually impossible to exploit them now because the conditions of the country are too dangerous and violent, and there's too much sabotage, and there's also too much corruption. So its uh, I, I don't think that that this was done primarily so that the American oil industry could get Iraq's oil, that may have been one of a number of, probably was one of a number of factors behind the invasion, but uh, I don't think it was the primary one, and, and it certainly hasn't been the result.
2: Yeah, it hasn't really worked out. Well, let's go back and let's sort of walk through what you cover in this film, which is once we the invasion takes place, then there is the oc- occupation of Iraq and the administration of that occupation, and that's really where, where the crux of this film.
1: The first couple of disastrous mistakes that the United States government made uh, were made actually in 2002 uh, and in early 2003, even before the war, the first huge mistake was uh, using a much smaller number of troops than uh, a proper and successful occupation of Iraq would have required. The second mistake was doing nothing to plan uh, in a serious way for the post war occupation of Iraq. The organization that managed the occupation of Iraq was only created uh, 60 days, literally 60 days before the war began, and it only started occupying its offices and hiring people 50 days before the war began. And it was given a suite of offices that had no telephones and computers initially. It was crazy. Then, after the war, the United States administration made a series of really horrifically disastrous mistakes, uh, principally made by L. Paul Bremer when he took over the occupation of Iraq in um, early May of 2003. In his first 10 days at work, Bremer made enormous, uh, important, and hugely erroneous decisions. He, stopped the formation of an interim Iraqi government and instituted an American occupation with virtually no Iraqi uh, voice or consultation in the country. He purged the Iraqi government of most of its senior administrators, engineers, and technocrats.
2: That was, that was called debathification, is that correct?
1: That was called debathification because, the, yes, the, the party that had run Iraq under Saddam was the, the Ba'ath Party. And so debatification purged uh, an estimated 40 to 50,000 people from the government, critical people who were important to keeping the government and the economy running. And then finally, and probably most fatally, Bremer disbanded the Iraqi army, secret police, and intelligence services, which had the result of um, throwing half a million armed men into the street unemployed with no separate pay. And weapons. And lots of weapons. And those men were responsible for creating the insurgency.
2: Yeah. It's quite a remarkable, when you walk through this in this documentary, No End in Sight, you see the uh, internal workings of a very incompetent administration. And I'm not sure where that, if it was an ideologically driven incompetence or it was just administrative, the inability to sort of manage people. How would you define or characterize this sort of bungling? I,
1: I don't think that it was sheer managerial incompetence for the most part. There was some of that. L. Paul Bremer uh, had never run a major organization before. The most senior job that he'd ever had, really, had been ambassador to the Netherlands, which is not the same thing as running an <laughs> occupied country. So there was there was certainly some your organizational incompetence, but I think that primarily it was ideological blindness and arrogance. These are not stupid men, but, but they were they were blind. They didn't consult with other people. They didn't listen when people tried to tell them that uh, they were making serious mistakes. Um, they, they were extraordinarily closed.
2: Well, and it's no small matter that many of the senior administrative officials from the president on down had no military, real no wartime experience. Some military well, among some of them, but most of them didn't. As we know, Dick Cheney was a five-time deferment uh, and never served in the military, and there were uh, examples of many other admi- senior administrative officials who had no background in all of this. So there is some of that. That had to be some factor of it. And then I guess you're talking about this arrogance, this the thought that just because we showed up, things were going to be
1: okay. Yes, I th- there really was an assumption on their part. It appears that, you know, we own the place, so anything is going to be all right that if somebody doesn't like what we do too bad there's nothing they can do about it you know uh, that that does seem to have been an element in their thinking and and i do think that the lack of military experience was a factor the the only senior administration official who was involved in iraq policy who had uh, served in the military at all was secretary of defense rumsfeld who had been a navy pilot in the 1950s but even he had never seen combat and none of the others had been in the active-duty military at all. Uh, President Bush, of course, had avoided the Vietnam draft by joining the Texas Air National Guard, and at the closest he came to combat, yeah. and none of the others had even served in, in the reserves. Uh, uh, L. Paul Bremer never served in the military, uh, Walter Slocum, who was in charge of policy for the Iraqi military, had never served in the military. Uh, neither at Vice President Cheney, neither at Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, neither at Condoleezza Rice, the National Security Advisor.
0: And we're speaking with Charles Ferguson, the writer, director, and producer of No End Inside, a documentary about Iraq. You've had a lot of wonderful interviews in this. I let me compliment you on the film—the way it's constructed, the way it's put together, just from beginning to end—gives a wonderful narrative on just. How things took place, I want to say you know it it really exposed the incompetence of these people or at least their their inability to react in a in a uh, in a positive fluid way to predicaments that they were in it's pretty apparent that they were ideologically driven you don't take sides in this for the most part, either. I mean, you're you're showing them speaking, and you're showing the interviewer speaking. Did you know uh, right off the bat where you were headed with this film, or were there revelations along the way that kind of steered you off into different directions?
1: Oh, I was frequently quite surprised at Mm -hmm. what I found. When I started making the film, it was already clear, uh, because I'd already spoken with a considerable number of people who'd spent time in Iraq and studied it, it was already clear that the United States government had made serious mistakes there and that, and that things were not as the administration was portraying them. But uh, when I began doing serious research and talking to the people who had actually run the occupation, I have to say I was stunned at what I found. I, mm-hmm. I did not imagine in my worst nightmares that things could have been as as horrifically mismanaged as they were.
0: Yeah. Give me an example. What was the thing that uh, might have stunned you the most? Through these interviews and te- uh, speaking with people, what was the shocker for you?
1: Oh, very hard to choose. <laughs> yeah, yeah I really can, can imagine. imagine. Yeah,
2: I'll,
1: I'll, I'll give you uh, one example. Uh, when, when the people who were in charge of the initial occupation of Iraq entered the country, entered Iraq in, in mid-April of 2003, they did not have... Telephones, internet access, or email. And in fact, they didn't have telephones for, in many cases, Mm -hmm. many of them don't have telephones for weeks and in some cases months, Uh, which is uh, (laughs) crazy.
0: Yeah. We hear that from, uh, is it Barbara Bodine who? Initially, is that where you learned about it?
1: Actually, I learned about it first from other people. Uh, oh. She mentioned it in her interview, and she's the one who says it in the film on camera. But oh. several other people told me the same thing. And, and when the first person told me that, I, I just didn't believe them. I said, "You know, you're exaggerating. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really like that." But um, the first person who told me that was was uh, someone who had worked in the occupation early on, and he told me that. The only way to make appointments was to meet people at lunch because that was yes. the one time when you could reliably know that somebody was going to be in a given place because you couldn't reach them otherwise because you didn't have telephones. And when he said that, I thought, you know, you can't really mean that. <laughs> yeah.
2: He did. There's so many. I'm going to go to one of my favorites, which was when Colonel Hughes was talking about uh, the Iraqi military about the time they were beginning to the, the order was going out to disband the military and Colonel Hughes had an Iraqi general who c- approached him and said that I have 10,000 men who are ready right now to become the police force for Baghdad and beyond and he was in command of many thousands more who were prepared the military Iraqi military was prepared to be a part of this reconstruction of Iraq And they essentially fell on deaf ears.
1: That episode is, in fact, another truly stunning episode. Um, The general did come to Colonel Hughes, and and he said, I can have 10,000 military police for you next week. And uh, Colonel Hughes took that information to the man in charge of occupied policing. And that man was Bernard Carrick, who was Rudy Giuliani's protege, uh, in the city of New York, Bernard Carrick uh, had started as uh, Giuliani's bodyguard and then become, um, heaven help us, uh, police commissioner of the city of New York. He is now a convicted criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has been involved in a number of criminal enterprises and he recently pled guilty to uh, two crimes and he's uh, still under investigation for many more. And for six months, he was in charge of running the police in occupied Iraq. And by all accounts, he did an appallingly bad job.
2: And wasn't he at one time, his name was floated as uh, a potential head of Homeland Security?
1: He was actually appointed to be uh, the head of Homeland Security. For about 10 years, And his appointment was, uh, he withdrew his, his uh, nomination uh, when a, a half dozen scandals immediately surfaced.
2: Yeah, including his involvement with organized crime in New York. So, yes. This film is replete with, with these examples of this amazingly incompetent behavior on the part of this uh, administration. The exchange of interviews and I, uh, between Colonel Hughes and Is it Slocum? This was the sort of one of the uh, more important set of interviews that you were doing with Walter Slocum and Hughes as they were sort of back bantering, not in the room, but going back and forth, point counterpoint about some particularly important part of the occupation.
1: Colonel Paul Hughes was in Baghdad and working as director of strategic policy for the occupation, and he found himself in charge of managing the iraqi army uh, including the beginning of efforts to recall the iraqi army in order to use the army to stabilize the country and begin reconstruction he was communicating with walter slocum who was um, a senior administration official who had been appointed to be in charge of policy for the iraqi military but mr slocum stayed behind in washington dc and did not uh, Visit Iraq during the first month of the occupation, amazing. and then L. Paul Bremer was appointed to replace the the initial head of the occupation. And without consulting Colonel Hughes at all, without informing him that they were even thinking of doing this, uh, Bremer and Walter Slocum decided to disband the Iraqi army. And Paul Hughes learned about it by watching it on television. Yeah,
2: it's just, it's just amazing. Iraq is a mess, everyone. I think anyone who has, has uh, any sense of perspective here sees this just unfolding cat- catastrophe in Iraq. I guess uh, for me, watching this film, the basic question that I have is, did it have to happen? Did it have to unfold this way? Was it inevitable that there would be an insurgency and, a, and a, an attempt to repel this occupation by the United States? Or could this have gone well?
1: it certainly could have gone much better. I've, I've, of course, asked that question of many people who were involved in the occupation and who um, have studied the issue, and I, I've asked it of myself. And there is a, a wide spectrum of opinion, but there is a center of gravity to uh, to that breadth of opinion. And, and most of the people that I've spoken to who've spent time in Iraq, who've worked in the occupation, believe that this did not have to happen. That if uh if this had been done reasonably competently, Iraq would still be a, a troubled place. It it had been a, a a brutal and impoverished dictatorship for twenty years under Saddam. It wasn't going to be a paradise overnight, but but that it could have become a reasonably normal, stable, safe society. And it could have been back on a pathway to reasonable prosperity through um economic growth and and the rejuvenation of its oil industry
0: so this didn't have to happen yeah. to... within those interviews every once in a while there a card f- pops up saying uh we uh, dick cheney was offered to uh an interview and really? was with uh, and turned down the request uh did you have any interesting experiences in in trying to get some of these people to speak for themselves was there or th- were they pretty much just sending you back form letters
1: no not always i and, and Some of these people I I knew personally, uh, or we had mutual friends, I tried extremely hard to convince L. Paul Bremer to speak with me, uh, at least off the record and and if possible on camera, and he initially said yes, actually, Uh, but then he backed out and he sent me through his uh, publicist, actually, this uh, rather strange message that... He wanted to cooperate and wanted to uh, speak with me, but he didn't think that he would have any time in the next year. And I uh, sent him back a reply (laughs) saying that uh, I was willing to do absolutely anything and spend any amount of money to save him three hours of his time so that I could Mm -hmm. interview him, but I didn't hear back.
0: Mm. He planned his year out better than he planned (laughs) the invasion. eh? Yes, I guess he did. It's
2: a great film. I really recommend this highly. Uh, People interested in finding out really kind of zeroing in on where it is that things went horribly wrong in Iraq. Uh, The film No End in Sight is the one you should watch. Charles Ferguson, thank you so very much for being here on Film School, and good luck to you on this and other projects.
1: Thank you so much, sir.
0: To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash film school.